Welcome to the AccuSprout Podcast, where it's my mission to help new practitioners of Chinese medicine navigate from school to career. I'm Stacy. I'm an acupuncturist and herbalist, podcaster, coach, and creator of Magical Networks. Be sure to check out all four pillars of the podcast where I cover case studies to sharpen your clinical skills, mindset Mondays to support your mental health, new practitioner interviews to prove that you are not alone, and all things business from launching your practice to negotiating your pay if you choose to be an employee. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors. So if you would like to support the podcast, be sure to check out the sponsors page on the website to claim your special AccuSprout offers. When I first started my practice, I was actually kind of a disaster when it came to my books. I hired an accountant who actually laundered money from another client. So I went on a quest to find a bookkeeper who really tailors to and loves working with acupuncturists. And I found Sarah at Horizon West Bookkeeping, and I'm feeling pretty fortunate. Sarah offers acupuncturists and the AccuSprout community a couple different packages so that she can meet you where you are. If you're new to practice, she can come in and do what's called a QuickBooks startup package for you, where you get pretty deep discounts on QuickBooks for about four months. She sets up your chart of accounts, assists with linking your bank accounts, makes sure that all the transactions are imported, and then teaches you how to use it with two hours of one-on-one training. It's a killer deal. She also offers cleanup packages and catch-up packages. Not catch-up packages, guys. Catch-up packages. And a monthly package, which is what I use. And I find it quite affordable and so, so, so worth it because, honestly, I never, since the beginning, have been able to keep up with my bookkeeping. You can schedule a free 15-minute consultation with Sarah to make sure that you guys are the right fit for each other. And you can do that at horizonwestbookkeeping.com forward slash AccuSprout or look for the link in the show notes. Today's episode is also sponsored by Jane, an all-in-one practice management software with helpful features to power your acupuncture practice. Jane offers flexible scheduling options that match the way you work. You have the option of offering one-on-one online sessions for initial consults, meeting in person, and scheduling staggered appointments to accommodate treating patients across different treatment rooms. Jane has you covered. Keep the relaxation going with a seamless checkout experience using Jane's PCI-compliant payment solution, Jane Payments. You can collect patient credit cards securely through your intake form or at the time of booking with an online booking payment policy. This can also help reduce no-shows in your practice. It's a win-win. And Jane's unlimited SMS and email reminders can be sent automatically before each appointment as an extra layer of no-show protection. To learn more about how Jane's helpful features can help you power your acupuncture practice, head to jane.app to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their team. Or if you're ready to get started, head on over to accusprout.com forward slash Jane. And remember to use the code accusprout1mo at the time of sign up to get a one-month grace period applied to your new account. as a healthcare provider because you're because you're a covered entity under HIPAA if if you have a business website you need to put your HIPAA policy on your website 
Welcome to the Aki Sprout Podcast, where it's my mission to create a supportive community for new practitioners of Chinese medicine, while I give you the information and inspiration to help you grow towards your vision of success in your first couple years of practice. This is Stacey Whitcomb, and I am your host. Hey Sprouts, welcome back to the show. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about legal stuff again. I've got Rachel Schumont with us here of Council for Wellness. She is an attorney for small businesses and mostly holistic practitioners. I'll let her tell you a little bit about herself again. Rachel's been with me for a couple of episodes. And originally in episode 16, we talked about how to make a healthcare website ADA compliant. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, head on over to episode 16. And we also, again, spoke about how to stay on the upside of legal in a quickly evolving tech world in episode 21, where we went into a deep dive on maintaining HIPAA compliance with social media, with your website, with your newsletters, everything tech, and went through a big review on how to maintain HIPAA compliance with that. So if you missed that episode, that is episode 21. Okay. Welcome to episode 23. Again, we're going to be chatting about what legal documents you need to have in place and what disclaimers and policies you need to have on your website. So enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you. Can you please tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do, who you help, and anything else that you'd like to say to the audience? Absolutely. So my name is Rachel Schumont. I am a health and wellness attorney. I have a practice that is based in California. It's called Council for Wellness. And I specialize in the laws and regulations as they pertain to healthcare providers like you and other other practitioners in the health and wellness industry in general. And I love what I do. I love that I get to help you guys create and maintain these businesses so that you guys can focus on doing what you do and you don't have to worry about your security and your liability. And specifically what I help my clients with are things like choosing an appropriate entity, maintaining that entity, determining which contracts they should have in place, which policies, procedures, if they're hiring employees, what they need to do, are they classifying their employees correctly? Do they have intellectual property issues like trademarking and copywriting and really anything else that that comes up in in a business legal sense for their practice. In the last episodes, we did a really good job of defining legal terms. So you sprouts and myself, honestly, (laughs) could understand what Rachel was talking about. So today we're going to talk more about the documents that are necessary in specific pockets of your business. In the last episode, we specifically talked about the potential of being sued for negligence. So let's start with negligence. Oh, wait, let's start first with your disclaimer. (laughs) <laughs> yes. And that's what I was just about to, to say. <laughs> Every single time. Okay. <laughs> before, before I get into the definition of negligence, which I'm sure everyone is so excited to know, I am an attorney. I am licensed in California and I am licensed in Florida and I am able to offer legal advice on the laws in these states. I'm also able to offer legal advice on federal laws. And I am I'm so happy to be here to share my knowledge with you. I hope that the knowledge that I share gives you practical information that helps you better understand how to operate your business. But I would like to make clear that 
while I am an attorney, I am not your attorney. And me speaking here does not establish any sort of attorney-client relationship. The information that we talk about today is for general informational purposes only. And nothing that I say should be taken as legal advice or advice that would directly apply to any specific set of facts. So if you have questions about something that we're talking about today, it is always a the best decision to find a resource in your area, whether that's a legal professional or otherwise, and get that professional opinion before you take any action or inaction. Hey, Sprouts, I don't I don't know. I was just listening to Rachel and I've heard her say this a bunch of times now because we've recorded four podcasts now. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, the next time my neighbor asks me for medical advice, I feel like I'm just gonna say what Rachel just said. <laughs> Because we've been talking legal talk for Rachel and I for a, a lot. Let's just say a lot lately. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, you know, I need to have more more boundaries, better boundaries. So the next time a neighbor asks me, I'm just going to say all of that and put it in medical talk. <laughs> and it's I, probably a good idea. Like it's probably in my best interest too. Absolutely. And it's funny <laughs> that you use the term boundaries because that's the whole, the whole topic of today is about, I think, in my opinion, it's about using legal documents to set healthy boundaries to comply with laws, but also to to set those boundaries. And so everyone knows what's up. Right. Because documentation means that other people are reading what you're trying to share, so to speak, or, or the, the path. It's like the GPS, isn't it? Like, here's what we do. Here's what we don't do. Here's what I'll tolerate. All right. So we're going to start with negligence. You guys, in the last in the last episode, we were talking about malpractice insurance and being sued for negligence came up. So I just want Rachel to touch on what negligence is very quickly. Yeah. So I think we said last time that negligence is this term that is used in everyday language to describe many different things. But in a legal sense, it is pretty specific. So in a legal sense, what negligence is, is that you have this duty to another individual or entity. And that if you don't perform in accordance with that duty, if you don't, if you fall below your duty of care, what what you owe them, then you will be found to have breached your duty to that person. And then if you, if that breach caused some, causes some harm to that individual, then you will be found negligent. And the standard that the law uses to kind of determine where you fall and that is called the reasonable person standard. So in your situation as an acupuncturist, what would a reasonable acupuncturist have done in this same situation? And that is how courts or someone will look at how you, how and if you were negligent. So for example, can you give me an example? Yes. So if you, my gosh, we used a really, really bad example last time. So I'm just going to keep going with it. (laughs) You, if a needle broke, you had inserted it. You cut it out. This was a great example. (laughs) Probably not one of my best examples that I've done. That was awesome. Okay. So what she said last time was if, if a needle broke, would you get out the scalpel and cut the needle out? Right. So that that would be negligence. Right. Because your scope of practice does not allow you to function as a surgeon. So you wouldn't be doing that. And and if you did do that, you would be breaching your duty of care that you owe to your patient. And that would probably harm them in some way. So it would cause what is legally called damages or harm. And you would probably be found negligent. 
That's a great example. People will remember <laughs> that. It's a perfect example. It's very good. Very creative. Very creative. Okay. So what what documentation do we need to have in line regarding negligence? So there, there's many different things that you could, documents that you could have in place. So I'm just going to touch on a few that I think are most applicable. So the first item being a patient agreement. A patient agreement is a written contract between your practice and, and your patient. And it would be specific to your practice. For example, a practice that accepts insurance will have a patient agreement that looks very different from a practice that does not accept insurance. A patient agreement will cover things like your financial policy, what happens if a patient cancels late or doesn't show up at all, and how, how you communicate with each other. And then it will also have standard contract language. You probably often hear people say boilerplate or boilerplate language. And that's language that covers things like if it, if a lawsuit is filed, where where will the lawsuit be heard or what, which court will decide it? How you can change the agreement. If you have to provide notice to, to someone, you to your patient or your patient to you, how you provide that notice and, and things of that nature. And along the same lines as a patient agreement, because some practices choose not to use a patient agreement, you could also have standard off office policies, um, which will cover a lot of the same information that you would see in your patient agreement, like your financial policy, but it's not a contract with your patient. And it's not a legal requirement that you have that, but having these clear office policies is an, an important aspect of your practice. And it's a way to set those healthy boundaries. So if you choose not to have a patient agreement, this is another way to, to get your office policies out there and you could in include it in your intake packet. Another option to consider is having a written informed consent. So at, as you know, informed consent is, is fundamental to your, to your practice. However, not all practices use written informed consent. And instead, some practices document these conversations and the patient's consent just in their records. But having a clear written document with the patient's name and signature on it is, is written proof that you have complied, that you have, you have informed your patient, that you have obtained their consent. And there's really no um, question about relying on memory or whether or not you went back and, and created these notes later on and that conversation never happened. Right. And I, th I think, don't some states require written consent? I, I feel like here in Washington, I mean, I already do it, right? So I've already got a patient agreement because damned if you're going to cancel on me and you didn't sign that thing. You know what I mean? Like I'm taking a picture of that and charging you for not showing up, you know, those no-shows. So I have policies and I make them sign those policies so that when they, obviously, like you just said, firewalls, you, they breach them, then I can show them that they, they agreed to it. But the informed consent, I, I just, something in the back of my head keeps saying like Washington state makes us have an informed consent. I don't, that, that, and that might be the case there. I'm not sure about Washington law, but like you just said about, about office policies and your, and your patient agreement, I have spoken to so many providers who have said that, that, that makes all the difference because I think because there is such a close, can be such a close relationship with your patient that oftentimes patients think that they wouldn't, wouldn't be responsible to pay for an appointment that they just didn't show up for and having that 
having that signed agreement or, or office policies in place, it's, it's such a, an easy way to say, here, look, it's, it's something that we already agreed to. And it kind of makes the agreement or the office policies the bad guy in the situation so that, that it doesn't harm your relationship. And what I hear from people is that often that's all it takes is, oh, you know, it's our office policy. Here it is. You signed it. And then the situation is over. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is a delicate way of, if not delicate. I mean, I, I see this all the time with practitioners too, having such challenging boundaries with regards to this. And and I say, geez, put it put it in writing from the very beginning. I have experience with this from my massage practice. Like, people will push your boundaries, you know. And when somebody doesn't show up for me on their first visit, even though I've got it all in writing that I will charge you for no shows. And I the I have a twenty four hour cancellation policy. I always reiterate to them, like, look. I have a cancellation policy that's a 24-hour cancellation policy. I I always give my my patients one freebie, but the next time I'm going to, you know, do this. There was one point when I had in my massage career that I had a couple of people who just it kind of like you said, like got really comfortable and started no-showing. And so I re- I wrote up this was in paper days. I, I created another cancellation policy and I had every single person sign that thing for two months <laughs> and put it in their file again, because I was so like, you know what? I'm just going to do this. Like I'm updating my cancellation policy. You can always tell people that too. If you, if you haven't collected signatures, you can always say, Hey, I'm updating my cancellation policy and I'm having everybody sign it before they, they visit again. You know, and that pretty much nips it in the bud too. So we just went off on a little tangent, but I think it's a really good teaching moment. So and you also raised an, another good point. There is this constant conversation that I hear about, again, this what's called this standard or boilerplate contract language that you often see at the end of, of contracts and, and whether or not that is necessary and, or whether or not that's just lawyers putting in you know, extra words. And what you just said really drove home a point t- for me if you have a policy in your patient agreement and it's part of your contract and you say, if you don't show up, you pay, but then you don't enforce it, legally, that could be a waiver on your part and something that you can't enforce down the road. So part of that boilerplate standard contract language usually or should, you should have that in there, says, hey, if I if I waive you know, a, a provision in here, that doesn't mean it's a continuing waiver. And, and I can still enforce this later. So that's a good point. And that's a good point because you just saved so many people. Mm-hmm. So if you do waive that first one, you need to have that waiver in the, in the patient agreement. Thank you. Very mm-hmm. good. And then did we cover the written consent form? I think yeah. we did. Yeah. Okay. But along the same lines as your written informed consent is a informed, I'm sorry, a telehealth consent. And that is, is so applicable these days, maybe not specific to a standard acupuncture practice, but I work with a lot of different healthcare providers who have moved their practice online. Right now I'm thinking about dietitians in particular, but state law, depending on where you are, you should look and see about your requirements for providing telehealth. Same thing as telemedicine. Those terms are used interchangeably. But so in California, 
because of COVID, there's a lot of health-related requirements that have been suspended. But in general, California law requires that a healthcare provider who is initiating telehealth, they have to inform their patient, they have to obtain consent, they have to maintain appropriate documentation. And specifically, California says that you have to tell your patient of the potential risks and limitations involved with telehealth. So having, again, having your written consent that, that checks out, checks all the boxes of what your state law requires, have them sign that and have that filed away in their, in their file is, is a really good idea. That's new too. And if I recall correctly, you guys can check with your EHR because I think some of them, I mean, I know all the EHRs now have telehealth capabilities, but I think that they also may have provided some education around what should be in your uh, consent or that some of them, I think, maybe have provided a template for that consent. So check there, guys. Okay. So is that it? Have we done negligence, due diligence? Yes, I think so. I mean, there's there's always situations that, that come up where, where things... I love getting everything in writing. I love contracts. I love defining boundaries. So things always come up. And my, I, my, some of my favorite clients... All they do, if something comes up and they feel uneasy, they send me an email and they say, I don't know, am I supposed to be doing something? And then we have a conversation. So if something feels uneasy, if you're if you're questioning something, it's always a good idea to reach out to someone and say, hey, am I doing, am I doing this right? Should I have something? Should I have some document for this? Specifically, in terms of partnerships, I see all the time that people form partnerships with people that they love or trust. And they don't get any agreement in writing and then issues come up down down the line. And it's just always a good idea to put things, any sort of great agreement in writing. So moving on. So in the first series, we went pretty deep into HIPAA and we talked about all of those little pockets where I actually see a bunch of acupuncturists goof and you expanded in detail with your knowledge about HIPAA. Can you talk about HIPAA and what we need to be aware of with documents with HIPAA? Yes. So HIPAA is a federal law and it governs the privacy and security of health information. And HIPAA requires that you provide your patients with a notice of your privacy practices. And these are your privacy practices as they relate to protected health information. So the requirements under HIPAA for advising your patients is is really an essential aspect um, of your practice as a, as a covered healthcare provider under HIPAA. Um, and HIPAA is really clear in what's required to be in your notice. If you um, have some free time and want to read the law that says what needs to be in your privacy practices, it, it actually, this is one area of the law that's very clear about what needs to be included. But at the same time, your what you should comply with the law, you should include all that stuff, but it your privacy practices will be specific to your to your practice and and what you do in terms of protecting your patient's health information. One interesting point about HIPAA that not many people realize, I don't think, is that HIPAA says that your notice of privacy practices, if you have a business website, that you need to also put your notice of privacy practices on your website so your visitors can see it there. And then also, you should have a an authorization for patients to sign if you are disclosing their protected health information outside of the allowable 
limits of HIPAA. So if you need to disclose your disclose your patient's protected health information, you need to get their authorization in writing. And again, HIPAA the law is very clear about what needs to be in your authorization and having a well-drafted authorization in place is is a must not only for appropriate appropriately obtaining your patient's consent and respecting their privacy but also for not violating the requirements that that HIPAA sets out right so anytime we talk with another doc specifically that's usually where i see that one Okay, so let's see here. Oh, and you guys, so just as a reference, uh, back to the the episode where we discussed HIPAA, if you don't know what a BAA agreement is, you need to go back to school and listen to that episode because it's a big deal. It's seriously, it's a big deal. If you're practicing and you have no idea what a BAA agreement is, go learn because you're you could get yourself into some doo-doo if you don't. So, and I know people don't. So, so, so take a look at that. You need to, you need to know your stuff. Okay. So most of us obviously are practicing. We already have some documents in use. Is there anything that we need to be aware of with perhaps some of the existing documents that we have? So what I, what I think about with this is, is the intake questionnaire, which, which will be specific for your practice, but your intake questionnaire, it should give you an understanding, a complete understanding really of your patient's history so that you're able to provide proper care. And among the information that you're gathering are things like knowing why they're there, what their symptoms are, what their medications are, what their allergies are. But where acupuncturists should be careful is to pay attention to anything in your patient's history that could indicate the need to withhold treatment and make an appropriate referral. So for example, we spoke earlier in an earlier episode about the scope of practice for acupuncturists and how acupuncturists should be careful not to cross the line and move into, for example, the the practice of obstetrics. So you need to understand why your patient is there and the care that they're expecting from you so that you stay like you like to say, stay in your lane so that you stay within your scope of practice and you aren't skirting into another area like obstetrics that would, would be beyond your scope. And then using the intake questionnaire is, is a way to ensure that you're staying within within your lane and you're making the appropriate referrals if necessary. So this is interesting, something that I've seen recently on good old Facebook is this, gosh, say somebody had tried to commit suicide a couple of times and they came in and they're seeking acupuncture treatment, like what types of documentation needs to be in, in, in care there? Like as an acupuncturist, I think you would want to say that I don't actually treat suicidal tendencies or mental illness. You know, I, I think that I would, I would offer something up along those lines is there something that you can say about that? I'm not sure what I want to say. Here. Yeah, I don't either. So I think, honestly, I'm just talking to documentation because in our notes, we have to be really careful about situations like that. Yeah, moving on. Moving on. I might have dug deeper on that if it hadn't been for that we were doing this for hours on end. Let's see here. <laughs> oh, I know. So I recently saw this other case on Facebook where... So say a patient comes to see an acupuncturist for the treatment of cancer, but they're not seeking medic- medical care elsewhere. 
is there a document? Is there is there a way to like we have to cover our asses and say we don't treat cancer because we yes. don't actually. It's a Western diagnosis and we don't treat cancer. But we definitely need to tell the patient that we think that they should seek Western medical care as well. There is some sort of documentation that we should do as well if they refuse treatment from Western medicine. Do you know this? I My initial thought is to document your conversation yeah. in your notes. But are you saying something, a specific document that they should sign? Yeah, I, I saw somebody talking about this on Facebook and they were like, you need to make sure that they sign that they're refusing Western medical care and seeking alternative health care instead. Oh. Perhaps I think you just maybe note that in your notes. I don't actually, I don't know. I'm going to look into that though. Sorry, just to jump back to that is absolutely. Yes. If I could carry around a recorder and just record every conversation that I have, but that's what I would like to do. <laughs> so yes, I would say, I mean, if you want to doc- have that, then sign a document. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, I tend to, anytime my gut says, ooh, this is a weird conversation, or I mean, because sometimes, I mean, that's obvious to me, right? right? Somebody who's suicidal or somebody who's coming for treatment and refusing care elsewhere and they're, they could die, you know, then I'm all about like every detail of every conversation being documented in my notes about this and, you know, about the feeling. Yeah, all of it. Yeah, all of it. Absolutely. It's interesting though that 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 isn't the norm. I don't think, or at least as far as I have seen, most people just just feel like it's going to be okay. Oh no, anytime no, yeah. Well, I hope not. I mean, I hope practitioners are actually. Well, this is a good conversation. Then you guys document if you feel in your gut something's not quite right. Document the heck out of it. Mm-hmm. I even document phone conversations. Like if somebody calls and I don't have my notes pulled up, I will create a day in my, you know, in my electronic health records, create a record for that day and just type in the conversation and sign it as if it's a visit. Cause Mm -hmm. that's, I'm not sure if there's another way to do it electronically. I'm sure somebody will write to me and tell me how to do that, but, or you can (laughs) amend, amend a a note too, but mm, I always document stuff because yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So let's talk about marketing and like, I hadn't even thought about this, but you brought this up. Like, is there, I mean, gosh, I didn't think that we needed to be worried, have firewalls up for our advertising or our marketing. So where does this come into play? So our our earlier episode about the Americans with Disabilities Act, we talked about how it used to be that businesses were brick and mortar, a, a storefront. But now most businesses, almost every client that I've worked with has a has a website that's tied to their business, a business website. And this makes me concerned because there are laws that you have to comply with when you have a website. Um, and specifically, I'm talking about consumer privacy laws and how business owners expose themselves to liability through places like their website. So here in California, we are leading the nation in terms of how strict our consumer privacy laws are. So it depends on the state that you're in, how strict the laws are. But here in California, you are required if you have are collecting any data from your website visitors, you have to have a privacy policy on your website. And so 
what I all often, not always, all, often hear from people is I'm not, oh, I'm not collecting any data. And then I'm like, well, do you have a, do you have a contact form on your website? Do you have a opt-in? Do you have a newsletter? Are they, you know, any information that they're putting out there, if you're collecting that and doing anything with it, you need to have a privacy policy. And what your privacy policy does is it tells your website visitors exactly how you collect their information, how you use it, if you disclose it or how you disclose it to other people. And the contents of your privacy policy are, it, a, they depend on state law, but they also depend on the specifics of your business, how, how large your business is, how much money you make annually, whether or not you're selling your, your visitors' data to, to a third party. And an important note about your website privacy policy, because I know we were just talking about HIPAA, is that your website privacy policy is different from your HIPAA privacy policy. They are two different laws or many different laws. HIPAA governs health information. And your privacy policy complies with consumer consumer privacy laws, consumer data. And those are two different things. So you need a HIPAA privacy policy and then a privacy policy for your website. Is the privacy policy the pop-up that you see on all these websites now? I keep seeing like a pop-up and it's that they're collecting info, that this website does actually collect information and, oh, it's accepting cookies. That's accepting cookies. That's what I was thinking you were talking about. With your privacy policy, again, it depends on state law, but in California, there's laws about how you have to present your privacy policy on your website. It it can't be like something that's hidden. So you have to use like like capitalization or um, a contrasting color or something like that so that it stands out. You can use the, the word, I believe it's privacy. You have to have privacy in there. So it stands out and alerts your visitors that that's your privacy policy. But another way to do it would be with with a pop up and say, hey, look, here's our privacy policy. Agree to it. I think that's probably the best way because that way, at least you get your signature or your agreement, right? Like, Absolutely. I think the reason maybe people don't is because depending on... Annoying. A, it's annoying, but also to have... You have to have a certain kind of like a a business. I'm thinking of Squarespace. To have a pop-up, I think you have to have the business like Squarespace account. And so you have to pay more for this. I think that's why people don't don't necessarily do that. Oh, I see. Now, tell me again, because we're talking legal speak and and it's hard. So what, what else did you, you said earlier, something else that we need to have on our website as well. What was it? I forgot. Are you talking about the HIPAA privacy notice of privacy policies? Does that need to be on our website? It does. Yes. As a healthcare provider, because you're, because you're a covered entity under HIPAA. If, if you have a business website, you need to put your HIPAA policy on your website. Do all do these have to be on every single page or can we have a page that says privacy policies at the top, like a link at the top on our menu? Oh, yes, you can. I personally, I put mine in my footer and I just have it as a, a, a contrasting color. And I think I think mine says privacy policy on it. So it shows uh, up on every page. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> yeah. But so while your privacy policy, depending on depending on where you are, while you're, that, that can be a legal requirement here in California. It's a legal requirement. There's other things you can have on your website that are not legal requirements. So if you, you can have what's called terms of use, they're also called terms and conditions. Um, and they are essentially conditions that you set for your website visitors and they have to agree to it to be able to use your website. And it 
covers things like what conduct is prohibited from your visitors. Like they can't, you know, post things on your website that are discriminatory or harassing, that you aren't responsible for links to third-party websites, that they have their own privacy policies and, and terms and conditions. It also will have that standard boilerplate boilerplate language that says things like, you know, what law controls if an issue arises. And then along the same lines, if you are selling products or services through your website, you can also have terms of purchase. And those will cover the requirements for, for instance, payment. If you offer refunds, it usually will contain a limitation of liability clause saying that your exposure is limited in some way if someone sues you. And those are like, I, like I've said, ways to set healthy boundaries, healthy boundaries for using your website, healthy boundaries for purchasing from you. And then I know we already talked about this a little bit, but a disclaimer, like I gave at the beginning of, of this recording. So disclaimers can come in many different forms as it applies to acupuncturists and, and your websites. What I generally see and recommend is having a disclaimer for professional relationships saying that, like I said, this this conversation that we're having isn't forming a professional relationship. And in mine in particular, I lay out the requirements of it to be my client, to have a have a professional relationship with me, an attorney-client relationship. You you have to sign an agreement. That's called a fee agreement. And I have that laid out in my disclaimer. You as a healthcare provider would have a disclaimer for medical advice. If you're including testimonials on your on your website, having a disclaimer about how maybe that is, you know, yes, you include these, but that might not be the result that you get. You can have a disclaimer for a blog. If you include advertisements, you can have a disclaimer for advertisements. And you're essentially saying that depending on the topic of the disclaimer that you that you aren't doing XYZ or this is the boundary of what you're doing. And it puts your website visitors on notice so that, for example, just because a, a client gave you this rave testimonial and says that they were cured of, of everything or whatever, that that doesn't guarantee that you're going to have the same results. Do we really? Like, My mind is all of a sudden blown because, of course, I have <laughs> testimonials and I'm like, but wait, I don't want to like the whole point of putting testimonials up is that you want people to see that you can create success. Why would you turn around and all of a sudden say, I create success or I have had successful cases and these things have happened, but. Yeah. You know why? It's, it's because people have been sued and they say you advertised that you cure X and, and I didn't. Therefore I want X, Y, Z. So having a disclaimer out there puts puts them on notice that there's no, you know, there's no guarantees in life. Maybe that should be the, the title of, of your disclaimer section. There's no guarantees in life. <laughs> no guarantees. No guarantees. Okay. So I'm going to shift the topic a little bit. So here is a little doozy. So once again, gosh, I just keep talking about Facebook. Like it seems like I might spend my whole entire day on Facebook. I absolutely do not. I think I get on Facebook like 10 minutes a day and kind of just stroll through the acupuncture pages just to see what people are talking about. But here's the latest. Here's the latest. (laughs) This was yesterday and it's a little bit of a doozy. So a new practitioner popped onto our state organization page wanting to know if they needed to sign up or or to create their entity as a PLLC or an LLC. And Mm -hmm. I jumped in there and I was like, 
you know, in my experience, you know, actually first I did a bunch of research and then listen to that guys. Let me repeat that. (laughs) I did research before I opened my mouth and told somebody what to do. (laughs) Anyway, from, from my understanding, from what I read uh, and pulled up on the state side, et cetera, was that you don't have to create a PLLC in Washington state. And then honestly, from brief research, that the main reason somebody might want to create a PLLC is if you're in a practice with multiple practitioners, if somebody else gets sued, you're less likely to get sued as well by pure association of being in the practice. I'm going to give you a minute so that you in a minute so that you can you can go back and amend my ways. But <laughs> but Somebody like was like, no, you're giving misinformation, blah, blah, blah. Someone on the board, actually. And I was like, I, so I called the secretary of state to get the true information. And here's what I learned. I learned that according to the state and when you file for the type of entity you want, they actually don't care. So PLLC is for somebody who has a license, a specific license. So we definitely could file it for a PLLC. And the state doesn't actually care if we file for a PLLC or an LLC. We're pretty much very similar, same, same, no difference. But legally speaking, this is where there's a difference. And there is a reason why you might want to form a PLLC over an LLC. My understanding was multiple practice other people get sued, you're less likely to get sued. Can you speak about that for a minute and then go ahead and tell us more about entities if you've got more and what type of documentation and help we might get there as well? Yes. And yes, with a caveat. So (laughs) you are in Washington and I am not licensed in Washington. Although when I talk to people in other states, um, not offering them legal advice in other states, but just hearing about what the requirements are in other states, I'm envious because here in California, we professionals are not able to file for an LLC. So that is, I'm envious that you guys can do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I can't um, speak to what is required or allowed or in, in Washington. However, generally, what the difference is with the P, P, PLLC versus LLC is, and it's the same thing. So in, in California, we have corporations and professional corporations, and that's where acupuncturists live. So if you have a professional corporation, I'm trying to think about how to describe this correctly. So you, if you have an entity, whatever your entity is, you can be sued for negligence and your entity may not protect you from that liability for your own negligence, for for your professional malpractice. And if you, and that, that goes across the board. So if you, if there are two professionals operating in your practice and someone is sued for professional malpractice, could they recover from, from both of you? If you have a professional corporation set up and you have two acupuncturists working there, then you are not responsible for the other person's professional malpractice. Right. That's what I thought. And that was exactly what I said and what I found in the research. Like if, yes, if you're two in the same practice, then, and the other one gets sued, you're, you're not liable. Right. Unless you're involved, right? right. Yes. And that was, (laughs) that was exactly what I was just going to say. Unless, unless it's your negligence. Yeah. Or your involvement. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> no, that was great. That was great. I appreciate that very much. And like Rachel said, some states are different. So I I put out a podcast, How to Start Your Acupuncture Practice, the first five pain in the ass business things that you have to do. And in that episode, I talk about filing for your entity is like the very first thing. And so if you get that, then you can reference back and, and know the difference between an LLC and a PLLC, but you do need to research your state requirements, guys. Okay. Enough about that. Did you have anything else that you wanted to say like about entity, about establishing an entity, Rachel? Just quickly, I wanted to touch on when I talk to people about establishing their entity, most of the time it's the people that I, some people that I have spoken with think that because on the Secretary of State website, it says, oh, if you file articles of incorporation, then you have a corporation. And they think, check the box, done. And that is not the case at all. So in certain situations, courts can ignore your entity. And they and the court can decide to hold you or officers, directors, shareholders, members, whoever's part of your, your entity, liable for, for debts. And when this happens, it's called piercing the corporate veil. It's very, like, fairy tale. But you're not talking about taking your personal assets, right? You're just talking about, oh my, okay, continue. Yeah. So when <laughs> so you set up this entity because it's, you create this, a separate, a separate thing, a separate and it's a separate entity. I can't think of another word it's right true. now. No, that's exactly what I was thinking too. Separate from your own personal bubble of assets. Yes. And saying that if something happens, that entity is responsible and I am completely separate from that entity. Mm-hmm. But there are situations where courts can say, mm, but you're not really. And so what I always tell my clients is that it is not just establishing your entity that's important. It is maintaining your entity in mm-hmm. an appropriate way. That is what is it. I mean, you, yes, you need the, the right things in place. You need to check the boxes, but you also need to, you need to maintain your entity. And so you can pierce the corporate veil in, in a lot of different ways. But what's relevant for our, our discussion right now is that you have to fo- follow these, these formalities to maintain your entity. So again, this is dependent on state law, but dep- and depends on the kind of entity that you have, but you'll want to have certain documents in place that you're keeping as part of your entity records. So if you um, are establishing a corporation, for example, there are corporate formalities, at least under California law, that you have to that you have to follow things like holding annual meetings, director's meeting, a shareholder's meeting, and then you need to keep accurate detailed records of these and they're called minutes. And you have to keep those as part of your your corporate record. And what this does is it shows that, that you are maintaining the separate entity. I'm trying to think about how to better explain that. In, in essence, that you're not, you didn't file the paperwork, but continue on as yourself operating your business, mm-hmm. that this is a separate meeting. You're file, you're following all the requirements. You're keeping the minutes. You're not commingling assets. You have separate bank accounts. You you're following the rules to keep to keep everything separate. And so, keeping these records, like like minutes of your of your annual meetings, shows that that you're following those requirements. 
Also, it depends on the state where you're in, but if you have a corporation adopting company bylaws, and what those are is that it's essentially the written, well, it doesn't have to be written. Most of the time it is written. It should be written, in my opinion, written rules about how your corporation operates. So even if they aren't required, most corporations do adopt them and keep them as part of their corporate record because it, it sets those boundaries about what is permitted and not permitted as part of how you how you operate your corporation. So keeping things like your bylaws, like your minutes as part of your corporate record, doing updating things annually. If you make changes, keep those documents as part of your, your corporate record, how you came to make those decisions and changes so that if, if your entity is ever questioned, because that's what you usually see if someone sues you and they want to go after your personal assets, that's how they'll, they'll do it first. They'll try to pierce the corporate veil. And if you can show that, no, you have, you've established correctly, you've maintained your entity, you're not commingling um, funds and, and, and you've taken all the steps to appropriately maintain your entity, then it's less likely that someone would be able to, to say that your entity is not. Okay. Now I'm going to go back and say that in my language and make sure that we got it. Okay. But I have a question before I start one, you're saying corporation, corporation. So in debt by definition, is an LLC a corporation or is it a, it, it's, this is where it gets funny with the States though, right? Because in Washington state, you can be a single owner LLC, right? Is that a corporation? No. Okay. That would be my question. It's only, is it, but then, so once I get into a certain, make a certain amount of money, then it makes more sense for me to start filing as an S corp. Is that, is that now a corporation? Yes. So um, a corporation. So when you say S corp, that is how you choose to be treated for tax purposes. And my knowledge of tax is very limited, <laughs> but an S corp, there's S corp and a C corp. And so you can elect to be treated as either for tax purposes. And very generally, an S corp means that you're a pass through entity, meaning you're only taxed once. If you're a C corp, you're taxed at the corporate level. And then again, Right. As right. No, but this is kind of, I think, I think pretty, pretty standard language. When you start, it's in your benefit financially, probably depending on your assets too. I mean, obviously have somebody evaluate this, but my first year I filed as an LLC sole owner, whatever. And then, and then she was like, oh, but we need to watch your income level, your, your gross income for your business, because you might need, you might benefit from, from changing your entity to an S corp next year. But I wanted to just see if, if an S corp then is actually what you're talking about with corporation. So now I'm going to repeat back to you what you said a moment ago about how to keep things separate. So you have the bubble of you, which is your, everything that you own and your assets. And typically when we file for an entity, the whole point of doing this is to keep them separate and protect our personal assets in the case that we may become, find ourselves in a lawsuit and for tax purposes, et cetera. So what you're saying is if you're a corporation, you need to do, do your due diligence to continually show that you're keeping the two separate in case you get sued. So one of the first things that you need to do is keep your money separate. In other words, have different accounts, use different credit cards, separate accounts, and do not mix the two. 
And then the other thing that you said was yearly corporate meeting. What did you call it? Yeah. So in California, I'm speaking on California law, there are initial meeting requirements and then annual meeting requirements. And then you have to keep records of those. So you're going to be talking about, even if it's just you, I talk to people who just sit there by themselves and have a little conversation and then create a little record of the things they change and they just type them up and then keep that as part of their corporate record. Yeah. And that would be things like things that you talk about would be things like your finances or your bylaws or your, you know, maybe the values of your company, et cetera, that type of stuff. Absolutely. And in in your initial meeting, you should be adopting bylaws. I'm supposing we can just Google all this and figure out what we're supposed to be talking to ourselves about in our first meetings. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there are templates for bylaws, (laughs) bylaws out there, but generally what bylaws are governed by state law. So most of what is in bylaws is what is in the laws that govern corporations or limited liability companies in your state. Okay. Okay. That was a good crumb trail you left us. That's awesome. (laughs) Okay. I think we covered everything. Do you feel like we, we, we covered all of the necessary paperwork that we need to have in place? Yes, I do. I think that there's always things that that come up. And like I said, if you're if you're questioning something, or if you think, I really need this in writing, then get it in writing or talk to someone who can who can help you make a determination of whether or not it should be in writing and and what it should say. Anything else you want to bring us home? Yeah, so I think that our goal with all of this was to talk about this kind of legal shield that you could create. And I think this what we talked about today is just just part of that having having the appropriate documents in place setting those healthy boundaries those are really important things to do but also like we talked about in previous episodes having having the knowledge and understanding of where your risks are and and the best practices to limit your liability and then having that strong malpractice insurance policy in place to to catch everything else and I think that doing things like this creates sort of this legal shield. So it puts you in a spot that if if you are sued, that you'd be less worried, I guess, than if you if you hadn't done all these things. Right. Right. And if it goes to court, then you're showing that you're doing your due diligence and that's the best that we can do. As long as we're doing the best that we can do. <laughs> I just want to give a very, very heartfelt Thank you to Rachel for spending all of this time. The amount of time that went into these podcasts is, I mean, I'm truly humbled and grateful that I met Rachel and that she showed up in this way. So thank you so much, Rachel. You're so welcome. I'm glad that I could give whatever information that I put out there that can help anyone. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. That's it. That's the show. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Here is your call to action. Do this for all the new practitioners who are coming out who might need help. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts so that the podcast gets picked up by more and more acupuncturists and more and more acupuncturists who are trying to launch their own practice. Thank you so much. Take care. That's it. That's the end of the show. 
Thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate you guys. And if you appreciate this podcast, it would be amazing if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a great review. And if you don't like what I'm doing, then that's okay. No worries. Just skip it.